0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we're talking about the United States and its eternal wars, Our guest is David Vine. He is professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. His books include Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. And his new book is called The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David Vine, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio.
1: David, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be back
0: on. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing another terrific book. Um, David, when people think about the causes of war, you know, some people believe they're to spread democracy and punish crime and establish peace. Some people believe they're the fault of the poor dark people who manufacture no weapons but have the wrong beliefs or they're overcrowded. And some believe that the wars are for profit and greed and ambition and cruelty. But almost never do we hear of military bases as the cause of war, as one of the causes of war. Should we think of military bases that way?
1: I think we should, as one of the causes of war. I think, I think, as you you've written and shown, there there's never a single cause, or, or very rarely a single cause for any one war. Certainly not for the whole long pattern of U.S. wars since independence, or let mm. alone the. 19 years of war that we have now just reached, uh, beginning in, with the invasion of Afghanistan. So bases, yes, play, I think, a, an important and, and often overlooked role in the, the pattern of U.S. wars, where what I explain in, in my book, The United States War, is that, that really since independence, the, the U.S. military and the U.S. government have been building bases abroad, building bases beyond U.S. borders and that these bases, from independence to much more recent years, have helped create a permanent system of war, a system of war that, that's really shaped all our lives in profound ways. Uh, that Bases uh, at times have been a, an explicit goal of wars, but, but part of the problem is that, that whether they're a goal of a, any one particular war or not, once once a base is established, outside US borders, they, they tend to make war not just possible, but they make war more likely. That they make it just far too easy for US leaders, US elites, US politicians to to wage subsequent wars. So that we've seen a process where where US war excuse me, um, well yes, the US wars have helped establish bases abroad. These bases abroad have then helped bring about Future wars, which have then brought about future bases abroad, which have brought about more wars, and in a, a, a process that, that's continued across time. Uh, but I think we do have to see the role uh, the bases have played in tandem with, uh, as you alluded to, uh, profit-making motives. Uh, you know, the bases and the wars um, that I, I describe and document in in the United States of War aren't just wars or bases for, for the sake of wars or bases, um, frequently they have advanced very uh, discreet, identifiable uh, capitalist interests uh, on the part of specific businesses, specific entrepreneurs, specific elites. Uh, so we have to see how bases and war have been deeply intertwined with, with capitalism, um, with the political interests of of. Specific politicians, um, but also with, with forces like, like racism and gender, it, that racism and gender have also shaped this pattern of war. So it's a, it's a complicated picture, um, but, but bases in particular have been overlooked, and uh, that's, that's part of what I am seeking to do in the book.
0: You you even cite uh, research by the U.S. Army itself uh, in the book that suggests that since the nineteen fifties, at least, uh, having U.S. bases in a location makes U.S. wars in that location more likely. Right.
1: Precisely. One of the claims about uh, this huge network of, of bases abroad that has sprung up since World War II and the earliest days of the Cold War. One of the, one of the longstanding justifications for maintaining these hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops around the world, has been that the bases make the world more peaceful, more secure, more stable, uh, that they have spread democracy. Um, but, but foremost has been the, the claim that, that, that they bring about peace. And, and the research funded by none other than the U.S. Army has shown that the opposite is the case, that, that the presence of bases abroad have actually made war more likely. And And my research has shown that this is actually a pattern that extends to independence but 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 it's important that we look at why the United States currently has around eight hundred uh, military bases outside the fifty states in washington d c eight hundred bases in around eighty countries and foreign territories or colonies often that uh, these bases uh, have been there and, and really are, are, are a remnant of World War II in the earliest days of the Cold War and are unquestioned by, by most people in the United States, by politicians, by, by people in the military itself, uh, and that these bases are in, in a whole variety of ways making the world more dangerous, uh, have, have helped, uh, as I explained, enable war and have made war far too easy and, and, and much more likely uh, in, in, in ways that have, have damaged and ended the lives of literally millions.
0: It seems like in addition to making it more, making it easier to start wars because you've got a base nearby uh, or to, to engage in wars because you've got a base nearby, uh, there are other mechanisms, right? I mean, if you've got a base, you have to fill it up with weapons and troops, uh, which gives you a bigger military and bigger influence in Washington. If you've got a base, it may be producing blowback, which gives you uh, excuses for wars. Uh, and if you've got a base, uh, as many of these bases are in brutal oppressive uh countries uh, dictatorships and other governments then you've got uh the united states government aligning with those governments uh other war making governments uh because it wants the bases right so so there there are a number of ways in which having the bases uh can make the wars more likely aren't there
1: Absolutely. I think you pointed to a number of the important dynamics at work. Uh, One, which you alluded to first, that the the bases abroad have become an important part of the military-industrial complex. Uh, They've been in the post-World War II era in particular, uh, that they have uh, on their own made uh, billions of dollars for military contractors, especially in the, the last 20, 30 years. Uh, who have so often built bases, maintained bases, run bases, expanded bases, all too frequently, uh, and 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 that once uh, you have this entrenched uh, system, where where people's livelihoods, where profits, are dependent on the the maintenance of these bases. Uh, it, it provides all the more incentive for, for people to come up with reasons to use the bases, to, to, to make use of them, and to ensure that they uh, stay in place. Uh, so I think that's, that's a, a critical dynamic that, that we, we have to see and one of the ways in which the, the power of the military-industrial complex has helped uh, drive this larger system of war uh, since World War II.
0: I like the phrase uh, David Vine that you use in the book, uh, borrowing from the movie Field of Dreams, where you say, "If you build them, the wars will come." Uh, what What are some examples? Some uh, Some specific examples uh, where the United States military has built bases, uh, and then wars have followed.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I, the Yeah. The reference in that that is is to indeed suggest that 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 uh, we shouldn't be surprised that when you build bases abroad, these, these bases tend not to be defensive uh, in nature. They tend to be offensive in nature. They tend to become launchpads for wars. And again, looking at, at U.S. history, you can see the construction of bases beyond U.S. borders, beyond the borders of the original 13 states from uh, during the Revolutionary War itself uh, and, and the, the earliest days after uh, the, the Revolution. Uh, of course, the, 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 the first bases abroad were on the lands of Native American peoples, Uh, as well as actually uh, briefly in Canada, as part of 11 invasions of Canada. But you see the United States expanding uh, beyond its borders almost immediately in the late 18th century and, of course, throughout the 19th century. Uh, You see other examples, you know, around the the 1898 war with Spain, um, where a base in Guantanamo Bay and other parts of, of Cuba helped first, launch uh, the invasion of, of Puerto Rico, uh, and then subsequent invasions into Latin America. Um, you see bases built during the U.S. war with Mexico uh, that led to the occupation of almost half of Mexico's land, including the place where I am now, California. Um, you see the, the the main base in California, the Presidio in San Francisco, uh, became a launch pad for subsequent wars into the Philippines, um, and as well as intervention, invasions um, into, into China. Uh, and then this pattern continued into the, the 20th century, with uh, the Middle East being, of course, the, the most uh, recent and, and probably most troubling example uh, where a very large infrastructure of, of bases was built up since the end of the Carter administration the, around 1979 and into the Reagan administration across the greater Middle East. And these bases have, uh, again, become a, a launch pad for a long series of wars, most prominently the, the wars in Iraq, the 1991 war, the 2003 war, uh, which in many, many ways is a continuous war to the, to the present with U.S. military personnel and bases still in, in Iraq, uh, among other, uh, interventions, wars, uh, combat of, of many kinds.
0: We're speaking with David Vine, whose latest uh, terrific book is The United States of War. Uh, David, you you talk about war of the past 19 years, uh, but in the book you you point out that there isn't actually anything unusual there, uh, and that the United States may not actually have had any years yet uh, where it— wasn't at war and in fact has had numerous wars that were longer than 19 years despite every newspaper in the country ta- calling the war on afghanistan the longest u.s war right
1: that's right um yeah i mean there was essentially one very long war against uh, native american nations and peoples uh, again from uh, the revolutionary war onward not after the revolution war during the revolutionary war um, the the war with the Apache, as you've cited in in some of your writing, uh, was thirty six years long. Uh, the you know the U S war in Vietnam, people date it differently, but effectively the the U S was uh, involved in Vietnam from the fall of the French in nineteen fifty five. So that's uh, you know a twenty year war there. Um, uh, and of course, we have to think broadly about what war is. Uh, the book shows that in addition to conventional wars or things that, that many would describe as war. Of course the United States has been fighting proxy wars, um basically paying or in supporting uh other armies to, to fight its wars in a variety of ways across time. Uh but again, especially in the post World War Two era when uh, the workings of, of, of US power have often been more surreptitious, more covert. Uh there have also of course uh covert uh operations that have helped uh, launch coups uh, uh, in, in foreign nations, and, and which is, uh, I think, clearly a, another kind of war. So, yeah, as many scholars say, there's probably not a single year in which uh, the U.S. government hasn't been involved in some form of war or combat somewhere on Earth.
0: You know, I've always tried to get people to imagine reversing places and what if a foreign nation had occupying troops and bases in the United States, what would your response be? But as you point out so well in in the book, uh, if, if you can remind people what the what the the protests were, what the outrage was about British <laughs> occupying forces uh, at the time of the uh, of the rebellion in the in the the colonies that became the United States. Uh, it, it's remarkably similar to the protests and complaints that people have who live near U.S. bases around the world today, isn't it?
1: That's right, and it, it is unfortunate. I think that, that most people in the United States can't really conceive of having to live next to a a foreign military base, a base belonging to Russia or China, or even a a close ally like Britain or or, or France or Australia. But indeed, uh, it was the presence of, of British troops and British bases on what is now U.S. soil, the 13 colonies, that was one of the prime motivations for the American revolutionaries to declare independence. Um, and you see it in the Declaration of Independence. You see it in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, this fear of, of, of and, and anger generated by uh, the presence of, of foreign troops. Uh, and this has been a, a, a long pattern uh, since U.S. independence, where where U.S. bases abroad, not surprisingly, have uh, been rather unpleasant to the, the people whose land and territory has been occupied. And in, in more recent years, of course, uh, this has been quite visible in places like Okinawa. I'm sure many listeners know uh, that, that, that uh, U.S. bases in Okinawa have, have generated tremendous anger on the past Okinawans, other people in Japan, uh, because of uh, not just the occupation of territory, the, the taking of people's physical land, uh, but of course the the long pattern of crimes that, that sadly have been committed by U.S. military personnel, including rape and murder, um, the environmental damage that, that bases inflict in a whole variety of ways. Uh, and again, I so one of the things I, I try to encourage people to do in the book, and I, I try to do this in my, my last book, Base Nation, as well, is to sort of put the shoe on the other foot to try to see what the world might look like, how it might feel to live next to a a foreign base, and and to reconsider our long-standing and, in my mind, long-outdated policy of maintaining hundreds of bases on other people's territory uh, and hundreds, thousands of troops uh, on those bases.
0: It's. Uh, I think people also imagine that these U.S. bases are are favors bestowed out of generosity, or at least have been negotiated in a in a civilized meeting room. Uh, whereas some of those bases on Okinawa were negotiated with with tear gas and napalm, right? I mean, y- you have a long list of places, including in recent decades, where the U.S. has bases where it's where it's conquered territory, where it's displaced the the inhabitants, right?
1: Indeed, yeah. Most people don't know that Okinawa was a U.S. colony until 1972 when it was returned to Japan. The uh, occupation of of Okinawa extended long past that of the rest of of the Japanese islands. And many of the U.S. bases abroad today are on conquered territory of various kinds, uh, including in, in what remains. Uh, U.S. colonies, I think it, it's important to, to, to remember. Um, you know, Today they're generally called territories, but, but these places are in a fundamentally colonial relationship with the United States. So we're talking about Guam and Puerto Rico, the American Samoa, U.S. Virgin Islands, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. I think we also have to think about uh, Guantanamo Bay as a colony. This is a, a swath of territory. It's actually about the size of Washington, D.C. It's not, not a small base where the U.S. has been occupying the land uh, despite the request of the Cuban government to, to give it back. And this actually stems before the Cuban Revolution. Cubans have wanted that land back. This is land occupied against the will of the Cuban people. And numerous other bases have been been occupied in, in similar uh, circumstances during World War II, but also uh, territory uh, occupied for bases uh, was part of deals with, you alluded to earlier, the undemocratic regime. Uh, these are uh, bases, uh, in fact, around half of the countries that are currently hosting U.S. bases are, are run by und- undemocratic regimes. Uh, so there is not the consent of the, 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 the people of these countries for the U.S. to have a, a military presence on their land. And this, I think, should, should be troubling to all of us in the United States who uh, would hold to any sort of democratic ideals. Why, why are U.S. bases occupying lands and de facto supporting uh, governments that are undemocratic? We, we, and that is the U.S. military and the U.S. government, is actually blocking the spread of democracy Um, and and frequently participating in in profound repression and and often murderous repression uh, when we maintain bases in in countries that are run by undemocratic, often dictatorial regimes.
0: And this may be a, a more minor point, but I think it's very interesting how you describe Guantanamo in particular as an example, but bases around the world uh, as these these gated communities, where if you go outside, you can commit crimes and not be held to any law, uh, and the people who live outside only come in to do the the yard work and the grunt work. I mean, has it does it ha- has it had any impact on U.S. culture in the so-called homeland to have so many people living for some period of time uh, in places that that resemble an apartheid society in that way?
1: It's a, a great question, and I, I think uh, it, again doesn't get nearly enough attention. I, I think what you're showing is that, that that U.S. bases abroad are, in many ways, they're all kinds of colonies. Uh, they're sort of micro colonies. Some not so micro. These are often large, you know, the equivalent of large towns or city, small cities. Um, that, that are in a colonial relationship with the surrounding country, that, that people, U.S. military personnel, live and, and work on them and basically can do whatever they want on the base and frequently have extraterritorial status off the base. They can commit a crime and either flee back to the base or, or frequently the military transports them back to the United States to escape prosecution. And often there are legal instruments that, that help protect U.S military personnel in the U.S. military and government more broadly. But I think, you know, the the other really important dynamic you're, you're pointing to is that the experience of living on these bases, living in these mini-colonies that, that are organized in an apartheid-type type fashion in a whole variety of ways, both the relationship with the surrounding community, but also on the base, they're, they're frequently, um, the people doing the grunt work are often um low paid Filipinos and, and and others um who are, are brought in and, and sometimes referred to as I saw at Guantanamo Bay in, in racialized uh manners. Um you also in Guantanamo you also have in addition to Filipinos low paid Jamaican uh contract workers. Uh and and I think, you know, US military personnel this becomes an important part of their kind of socialization, often at a pretty impressionable point in their lives, and, you know, their late teens, early 20s. Uh, and they come to see themselves as, I think, frequently deserving of, of this kind of king-like treatment uh, of, of having other people serve them, of being able to do whatever they want with impunity and get away with it, uh, and... and, and Again, you you see this, and I've seen it through my research that took me to bases around the world. You see it playing out in in racialized ways, in particular in, in countries that are hosting U.S. bases outside of Europe, primarily.
0: Yeah. Uh, Again, we're speaking with David Vine, whose book is The United States of War. Uh, David, in the book, uh, which I highly recommend everyone get, uh, there are discussions of, uh, for example, congressional investigators looking into these bases and deciding that many of them don't serve any particular current purpose, but they just last by, quote, inertia. Uh, Yet it seems to me if there wasn't somebody making a buck and somebody wasn't being pleased in some way, inertia wouldn't to keep anything Around forever, um, and and then there are uh, you know political uh, officials who talk about their great fear of of enemy attacks, and to defend the United States, they have to go and cover the globe with bases, whereas no other country on earth has to do that to defend itself. Uh, and, and so I I don't know to what degree the the fear is always completely honest, but it it doesn't seem to me like inertia and fear would be enough. Uh, if there weren't a drive to dominate the world, if that wasn't acceptable or pleasing to somebody, uh, would it be happening?
1: Yeah, I think it is a, indeed a complicated mix of forces and motivations and, and dynamics. I think the inertia is a, both a bureaucratic inertia, but even more importantly, a, a capitalist inertia. Uh, bureaucratic only in the sense that, that once a, a military budget is established, it, given the, the power of, of the military within the federal government and given the power of the military-industrial complex, those budgets tamed, tend to remain in place and only get added to. Uh, and indeed, because uh, military contractors, especially in the last three, four decades, have have tended to run and build and expand these bases— They have had uh, an interest in in maintaining those contracts, and and given their their power to to lobby members of Congress, have helped helped ensure uh, that the the bases have remain in place and remain running. Um, But indeed, there there is also an ingrained sense of 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 mission, an ingrained sense that 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 is the role of the United States uh, to to police the world that anything the United States does with its military is de facto good, um, that, that the United States is uh, in its motivations pure and is only, uh, you know, working in the interest of, of the world as a, as a whole. So there's some deeply rooted ideological dimensions that, that need to be, need to be shaped because, you know, the members of the military, for example, uh, don't see themselves as, 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 Perpetuating, you know, imperial rule, or uh, working on behalf of an empire, or working on behalf of, of, you know, U.S. corporations for that matter. Um, They they often, and I think generally, tend to see themselves as trying to to do good. Um, But but there are forces and structures that are that are larger than any individual, um, and they have come to shape how all of us in the United States have come to see the world and come to see the the role of. The U.S. military in the world, and and to see U.S. wars, um, and and that's part of the problem, and part of what I think we need to, to dislodge, to dislodge some of the mythology around the U.S. military, around U.S. wars, um, and to look squarely at the the tremendous destruction that the long history of of U.S. wars has inflicted on people around the globe, including people in the United States in a whole variety of ways. U.S. military personnel, their families. Um, but also the, the people, um, all of us in the United States, who've had our tax dollars stolen, um, to use the, the the language of President Eisenhower. It, 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 U.S. military spending is, is a kind of theft. It's a, it's a diversion and a, a theft of our taxpayer dollars uh, from pressing human needs like, oh, I don't know, pandemic preparedness, um, right. universal health care that would care for people who have come down with COVID, uh, all the money that has been diverted into the coffers of the military industrial complex, into the military itself, has come at the expense of, of people in the United States and their needs from health care to education to affordable housing to infrastructure and far beyond.
0: And with, uh, and with the U.S. Congress having gone out of its way to avoid ending any of these wars for over a couple of centuries now, uh, they're jumping right up uh, all over themselves to prevent troops uh, being pulled out of Germany, which, uh, you know, 75 years would just be too rushed, too reckless a withdrawal, I guess. Uh, we, with about a, a minute left, David Vine, uh, where can people go to learn more and follow up uh, and keep track of, of the work you're doing?
1: Thank you. Yeah, I would love um, for people who want to learn more. Uh, they can go to my website, davidvine.net, davidvine.net, and I, I would encourage people to to go there. There are whole list of resources as you actually have on on your website too. But you know, I wrote the book because I want to change this system of war. I, I want to, as I know you do, in all of your work, um, not just to diagnose the problem, and but I, I dedicate um, the last chapter to to proposing solutions and and alternative paths that the United States can embark on. Uh, So there are a number of ways people can get involved, uh, ways they can learn more and and do more um, at davidvine.net.
0: Perfect. Uh, The book, again, is The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. I cannot recommend it uh, more highly. Uh, David Vine, thank you once again for coming on Talk Nation Radio
1: david thank you so much i really appreciate your uh all the work you
0: do and and for having me on this is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.